Children's Church, if you're kindergarten through third grade, you're dismissed to go on out to Children's Church at this time. And the rest of us will be in Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. We have a long chapter this morning, and so here's how we're going to break this down. By the way, parents, if uh, your kids went out to Children's Church, um, they will be brought right back in to the same spot that they were dropped off at at the end of the service, so you don't need to go and get them or anything like that. Uh, We're thankful for our Children's Church team, those that serve in our children's ministry uh, across all of the things that uh, we do here at church. We're thankful that we have a next generation to make disciples of, and that's really, this is not babysitting or child care that's not what we do here we want to make disciples of our children so thanks to you folks who are doing that even now and so we're going to read this passage in three sections this morning we'll start with verses one through seven uh, then we'll pray and then as we go on we'll read the rest of the chapter and since there's a lot to get to I will go ahead and jump us in Exodus chapter 18 beginning in verse one this is God's word Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people Israel when the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses, Moses had said, I've been a resident alien in a foreign land, and the other Eliezer, because he had said, the God of my father was my helper, and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down to him, and then kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent. We'll pick up the rest of the chapter in just a moment, but before we do, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you with your word on the table in front of us today, asking that your Holy Spirit would give us the spiritual food, the spiritual nourishment that we need to be able to live lives that glorify you. God, we have read passages from your word this morning that encourage us to keep your ways, to know your ways. And so, Father, we pray that through your word today, you would teach us what it means to lead a God-ordered life, what it means to organize our, our lives the way that we live, to, to grow our affections in such a way that, that everything we do would bring you glory. Well, let us lead lives that grow our love for you, that grow our heart for you, and then encourage others to do the same. Father, we pray that your truth would shape us, that it would shape the way that we think about you, think about the people around us, that that you would give us eyes to see our own heart, God. We confess today that, that, God, we are so sinful as human beings that we don't even see our hearts clearly sometimes. So, Father, we pray that your word would give us wisdom. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work through it, that it wouldn't be the words of man that tickle ears, but that it would be the words, uh, your words, through your Holy Spirit, written by by humans, yes, but we do, do believe they are your words recorded for us, God, and they are the only words that give life. 
And so, Father, we pray today that your words would grant life, shape us, help us to be people who live in your way, we pray in your Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you're a part of the First Baptist family, you spend a significant portion of your life listening to me talk. So we're going to start our time today differently. We're going to start our time with you talking. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you, maybe the person behind you, beside you. If you're sitting alone, this may be a good time to make a new friend. And I want you to try to answer this question. How long does it take to climb Mount Everest? Take a couple of minutes, discuss it among yourselves. There will not be a test. And before some of you, primarily dads, say it depends on how fast you go, I, I understand that part. We're looking for something a little more concrete than that. I see some of y'all reading ahead in the notes. Now that's just cheating in church. Come on now. All right. Anybody have what you consider to be an answer that you didn't cheat to attain? That was good. A long time. I saw a hand back here. What? Oh, we're pointing at the middle school row. I like it. So what? Mr. Hedberg, Mr. Griffin, anything, nothing? He knows it. how much trash is left up there. What? A lot. They, have, they just leave trash. You believe it? They leave. I mean, no, there's no garbage truck that's going to get up there, so I get it, I suppose. Here's the thing. It takes around, uh, it's an interesting question, more, more interesting than you may expect, because you don't just like, leave your house one day and go climb the highest mountain in the world. It takes around 40 days to climb Everest once you reach base camp. But all told, an attempt to summit Everest takes up to three months, depending on weather and travel arrangements and things like that. And actually, it costs now tens of thousands of dollars just to make an attempt but even getting to Everest itself is quite an adventure. Climbers typically fly into Kathmandu, Nepal, and unless you take an extremely expensive and an extremely dangerous helicopter ride, then it actually takes about eight days just to hike from Kathmandu to Everest Base Camp. In fact, one man who climbed the mountain wrote this. He said, Everest Base Camp, where you actually begin to climb the mountain, sits at 17,600 feet. It's higher than all but two points in the United States. You're huffing and puffing by the time you get there, and you wonder when you finally arrive, exhausted, just how in the world you're ever going to survive. That's just base camp. That's not the top of the mountain. That's just where you start the climb from. You see, from base camp, you're still over 11 miles of hiking, 10,000-plus vertical feet below the summit. It takes weeks for your body just to get used to the altitude before you can even attempt to get to the top. And I tell you that because we've arrived at, at base camp, so to speak, for God's people in Exodus. Since we left Egypt, we've gone through one crisis after another. We've been in danger from armies. We've been in danger from hunger. We've been thirsty. We've been afraid we're going to die. And then we get to chapter 18. 
There's no movement of the people in chapter 18. We, we kind of narrow in on this one family for a minute, and then we pan back out. But we find out in the very ver uh, first verse of chapter 19 that we've arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. In fact, it tells us in the, the verses we just read that Moses is at the foot of the mountain of God here. We're at base camp, the foot of the mountain. In fact, the entire pace of the Bible shifts in these next few chapters we're going to study. Time dilates. Things slow down. They're less frenzy. I mean, somehow they're just as intense through these chapters, but if, if you're a young earth creationist like I, I am, then the first 67 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through Exodus 17, they take place over the course of about 2,600 years. The next 59 chapters, Exodus 18 through Numbers 20, all take place over the course of 11 months. So we go from, from 2,600 years, first 67 chapters, to 11 months over the next 59 chapters. God is doing something big in the hearts of Israel, and he gives us great detail about what happens. And incidentally, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll probably find Numbers 20 interesting. You can go look it up this week. But when is, tell me if this sounds familiar. When Israel first leaves Sinai, they wander in the wilderness. They can't find water. And yet Moses provides water from a rock. But that story goes very differently than Exodus 17. And alas, that's a whole other sermon that we don't have time for today because I think uh, the MASH finale is tonight or something. I don't know what's going on, but... Um, Something apparently is happening. Our evening schedule changed. And so uh, what we see here in Exodus 18 is God settling the Israelites in at base camp. They've worked hard to get there. They've been through a lot. And they have much more to go through. But in some ways, chapter 18 is, is a buffer. There, there's no crisis. There's no emergency. There's, there's some celebration. And there's some frustration. But... But no one dies. Things turn out okay. And that's where we live most of our lives. And we want to remember the hike up the mountain. We want to remember the highs and the lows. But in reality, most of our lives are lived in the normalcy of the base camp that sits between the peaks and valleys. It's there in Exodus 18 that I believe we see a pattern for what I'll call the God-ordered life. This second act of Exodus where we're firmly planted now. It is all about God teaching his people what it means to live now that they're free. How do they worship God as free people? This is all about sanctification, becoming to be the people God has already appointed them to be. So what does it look like when God is ordering the priorities of our life? It's the opposite of a self-ordered life, and I'll contrast those two things as we go a little bit. But, but there's three encouragements today that we find in this passage about living a life ordered by God himself. We've already seen the first one. We're to glorify God in, in our circle, we'll call it, in our people, for lack of a better word. Moses ordered his family according to God's priorities in his life. I mean, he, he named his sons to tell God's story. Their names are told, uh, they told of God's rescue. They're right there in verses 3 and 4. And it seems here, here's what happened. It seems that at some point between the Red Sea and Rephidim where we were last week, that Moses sent his wife and sons to visit her father. Jethro is identified as the priest of Midian and, 
and, and uh, Rephidim is thought of as being nearby where Midian was. So it makes sense that Moses would send them off for a visit. That's probably how Jethro heard, according to verse 1, about everything that God had done. And then when Jethro shows up, he rejoices to, uh, Moses rejoices to see him. He goes out to meet him. He shows him respect. He, he has a family reunion right there on the edge of the Israelite camp. And this first point isn't the primary point of the passage, so I don't want to spend a ton of our time here, but, but we get this more intimate look at Moses, the, the leader of a family, in these few verses than we do. Most of the time we're seeing Moses as leader of the people, Moses as the prophet, Moses as leader of this nation. But here we see Moses the dad, Moses the husband, Moses the son-in-law. What we uniquely see in this chapter is Moses glorifying God and how he leads and lives with those closest to him. He named his sons in, a way to, in such a way that God's glory was declared. His family told the story of God's glory. He even has a God-glorifying interaction with his in-laws. The takeaway from these seven verses is really this. Are you, and maybe how are you, glorifying God among those people you interact with the most. I started writing this a while back and the word, you use the word family as the header for this point and that's certainly in view in the text. But for some of us, those closest to us are not our family, at least not by blood. And one of the things I love about the people of God here at First Baptist Church in Centralia is that a lot of you have become family for one another. We're, we're growing in that way and we need to grow in such a way that there's no room for loneliness within the family of God. Some of you have incredible families, and maybe you need to invite others in. Some of you are here, and you are generally, genuinely looking for your, your people, your, your circle. You see, the self-ordered life is closed off. It's isolated because it wants to be. It's, it's full. Your circle is complete. But in the God-ordered life, there's always room, there's always openness. There's always room to respond to God widening your circle, God bringing new people into your life. I'm, I'm reminded of the bond between Naomi and Ruth later in the Old Testament. Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. When Ruth's husband, Naomi's son, passed away, the, the custom would have been for Ruth to return to her people. But she didn't. It made no financial sense, no societal sense. But Ruth clung to Naomi, and God used that relationship in an incredible way. Church, let's be family for one another. And whatever your circle of people is, whoever it is that you identify as your people, are you leading those relationships to glorify God? Do you, like Moses, use those relationships to tell the story of God's glory in a powerful way? Husbands, when you love your wife as Christ loved the church, by, by sacrificially caring for her, by, by putting her needs ahead of yours, you're, you're declaring God's glory in your marriage. Wives, when you serve your husband, when you... Follow your husband's good leadership. You're declaring your glory, uh, God's glory in your marriage. Kids, when you honor your parents by obeying their authority, even when it's in an area that they're probably never going to see and never going to know about, and I'll just go ahead and break it to you kids, whether you're 8 or 18, you live in Centralia, Missouri. A secret has... The Eagles' Super Bowl hopes have lasted longer than secrets will in Centralia. People in red are my friends today. That's good. You don't get away with anything, kids. And so uh, when, 
when you obey your parents' authority, you're declaring God's glory in your life. So how are you, whether you're a, a, a husband, wife, mom, dad, kid, neighbor, co-worker, how are you using your circle, your relationships that are closest to you to tell God's story? Do you serve together? Spiritually, sometimes it's easy for, for us to miss these folks who are right in front of us. It's clear that Moses, the, the father and husband, he prioritized ordering his family around God's glory. The story of Moses' family was God's story. So what's the story of your family? What's the story of your people? Is it God's glory? Is it, is it a sport? Is it academic success? Is it achievement? Is it our farm? Is it our team? Is it our town? Your family only gets one story. So use your circle, use your people to tell the story of God, to glorify God in whatever circle that is. And that's a piece of the next point, which is the larger point of the first half of this chapter. That's glorifying God in our witness, in the words that we speak. Look with me at verse 8. We read, Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. We'll stop there and pick up with our next section shortly. But, but Jethro requires a little bit of explanation. And, and let's face it, we all have in-laws that require a little bit of explanation, don't we? Michael Crobb, Joey Hawkins, and you, know, you guys that have those types of in-laws. Jethro requires a little bit of explanation. He's a pretty unique guy. He's identified in Scripture as the priest of Midian. And I can tell you that scholars debate a little bit about what that means. Was he a priest of the God of Israel who lived in Midian? I mean, Midian is named after a man who was a descendant of Abraham from his second wife. And so there's some evidence that maybe the Midianites worshipped the God of Abraham. But there's just as much evidence the people who lived around this place during this time would have worshipped pagan gods. And the Bible doesn't give us clarity on what Jethro believed before Exodus 18. I think we certainly have clarity after Exodus 18. But Moses and Jethro's relationship goes way back. After Moses committed murder in Egypt, he fled to Midian. And in a well there, he saved a group of girls from being harassed by a bunch of shepherds. Those girls were Jethro's daughters. And Moses ends up marrying one of them. And he began working with Jethro. And he worked with him as a shepherd for 40 years. Moses and, and Jethro were partners in their labor. And they were in-laws for 40 years before God showed up in the burning bush and called Moses. These guys were close. But based on this text, I don't think that Jethro had placed his faith in the God of Israel yet. It's my personal belief that Jethro was a, a pagan priest. Feel free to disagree. But either way, verse 8 tells us what Moses did. 
He shared the good news. Gospel is a New Testament word, and it means good news, but speaking the good news is very much what Moses did. He told Jethro of all the good things the God of Israel had done for his people. It's one of the clearest examples of personal evangelism we have in the whole Bible. Evangelism is simply telling others the good news about what God has done to save his people. And that's what Moses does. That's part of the great commission of Jesus Christ. Dr. Matz preached Matthew 28 for us last week. He preached it well in case you weren't here. Jesus told his followers, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And making disciples doesn't happen without evangelism. Disciples are followers of Jesus, and you can't follow Jesus until somebody tells you about him. The scene in Exodus 18, it predates Jesus by a few hundred years, but all the elements of an evangelistic relationship are there. See, evangelism isn't a program of the church. Though many of our programs have uh, an evangelistic element to them, many of our programmed ministries provide opportunity for evangelism to happen, but evangelism isn't a program. Evangelism isn't an event Though events can draw folks into evangelistic conversations, evangelism isn't sharing your testimony, though sharing your testimony can be used as a part of evangelism. Evangelism is telling the good news of Jesus Christ in such a way that someone is called to respond to it. That's what Moses does here. He tells Jethro everything God had done for him. He does provide his testimony. He recounted how good God had been to Moses and to the people of Israel. And that's all despite their rebellion and their mistrust. Moses tells a great story of God's blessing. All of us, church, interact regularly with people who we believe to be lost and destined for an eternity of suffering in hell. Moses knew Jethro to be a follower of other gods. Moses had a relationship with Jethro, and he cared more about Jethro's soul than he did awkwardness or, or being mildly offensive. And those are two of the primary excuses we give for not evangelizing, right? I, I, don't want to make it, I don't want to make it weird. I don't want them to think I'm some sort of religious nut. I don't want to offend everyone. And Moses ran those risks. Or what about this one? I, I can't share the gospel in this relationship. I can't tell this person about Christ because they know how I've lived. They've known me my whole life. They knew what I was like when I started working here. They knew all these things about my past. They know me at my worst. How can I share the gospel with them? Church, remember, Moses came to Jethro, not as the leader of Israel, but as Moses the murderer, as Moses the fugitive from justice in Egypt. Jethro saw Moses at his lowest point. And he interacted with him for 40 years. That's why I love this passage so much, church. It takes every excuse we have not to evangelize it, and it shoots it in the face. Every excuse we cook up, Moses had it. And he declared the good news to Jethro in such a way that he responded. He glorified God. He, he, he said, blessed be the Lord who rescued you. That's what Jethro says on the other side of it. He says, now I know the Lord, this God of Israel. Now I know that God is greater than all the gods. And then he goes off and worships. He brought an offering to the God of the Israelites, this priest of Midian. Not worshiping pagan gods, not worshiping half a dozen other sun god and god of fertility and all those things. No, worshiping the one true God. The priest changed teams. 
God worked in Jethro's heart through Moses, and it's my belief that he became a worshiper right there of the one true God instead of all the false gods he served before church. If God can save Jethro, God can save your neighbor. He can save that guy at work. He can save that girl on your team or that guy who sits next to you, and he can save you too. One of the blessings we have here at First Baptist Church is that there are new folks visiting our church gatherings all the time, and I know that some of you are here And maybe you come here regularly and you aren't saved. You haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And that same good news that Moses told Jethro is still good news today, though we have the whole Bible to reveal it to us more clearly. You can understand how God saves people better than Moses did in this point because we have the full testimony of Scripture, right? This is the gospel. God, who is good, God created everything that we see. A good God spoke the universe into existence. From the highest mountain, Mount Everest, to the lowest point in the sea, it all exists because God spoke. And Scripture tells us that the pinnacle of that creation, the greatest thing that God created, is humanity. God created man and woman in his image to worship him. But instead of worshiping him, humanity has rejected him. We turned our back on God. We decided we're going to worship created things instead of the creator. Adam and Eve sinned. And just like as we look at all the cute little babies that are Moving, I say walking around church, most of them aren't yet. But as we look at them and as we say, you know, this one looks just like his mom. Or unfortunately, this one looks like his dad. Or whatever the case may be. Just like those children begin to look like us, you and I, we look like our first parents. You and I look a lot like Adam and Eve in the way that we rebel against God and the way that we sin. In fact, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that is incredibly bad news. We have separated ourselves from God. In fact, we have declared ourselves to be God's enemies. Our behavior has earned God's wrath. It has earned us a sentence in hell that awaits all of us because of our sin. God is good. Man is not. But the answer is not in something that we do. The answer is in something someone else did. Jesus Christ fully God, became man. He took on flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. And that death that you and I deserve to die, that suffering you and I deserve to go through, Jesus took that on himself, offered himself as a substitute sacrifice. So we don't die for our sin. No, Jesus stepped up in our place, took, out, took the wrath of God on himself for all those who will ever call on him for salvation. And he died. But he did the one thing that you and I can't do. He overcame death. He was raised on the third day. He ascended back to the Father. That was God showing us that he accepts the sacrifice. And so all we have to do, knowing that truth, is repent of our sins and trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this incredible message telling the story of everything that God did from creation to Jesus. And at the end of the sermon, people cry out, what do we have to do to be saved? And Jesus, or Peter said, repent and be baptized. In your heart, repent of your sins. That means to turn away. That means to confess your sin to God. And then publicly follow him through baptism. Baptism doesn't save us. It's a picture of what's already happened in our lives. 
John writes in 1 John chapter 1, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, that is the gospel. And if you're here today and you don't belong to Jesus Christ, confess your sin, God will save you. Repent and you'll be saved. You don't need to repeat special words after me or anything like that right there where you're sitting. You can, you can speak to God. You can say, God, I repent of my sins and I trust Jesus as my Savior and you will be saved. That's what the Bible tells and that's the story our life should tell. That's what essentially Moses is doing with Jethro. He's explaining to him what this good God has done. And that church is how we glorify God in our witness. We, make, we, we order our life in such a way that our life it revolves around that gospel, that that gospel speaks into every relationship we have, from our in-laws to our co-workers to our kids to our neighbors. That relationship, that gospel fuels those things. And, and church, I wonder if you would join me in a bold prayer this week. I mean, if you're here and you don't belong to Jesus, pray for salvation. God promises he'll respond to that prayer. That's, that's all you need to do. But if you're here and you already belong to Jesus, would you just join me in a simple prayer that God will give you an opportunity to be a witness? God will give you an opportunity to evangelize, to, to share the good news about Jesus Christ with someone. And, and I believe that if you pray for that opportunity... God will grant that opportunity to you. Ask him every day. Just, God, let me have a conversation with someone where I can share the gospel and ask them to respond. And church, I believe if you'll really pray that, he'll do it. Moses models it for us perfectly. You know someone who needs to respond to the gospel. Don't assume that they know it, by the way. That's a part of my testimony. I grew up, uh, I did not grow up in church. I grew up in the, the buckle of the Bible belt right there in Tennessee where all of my friends, for the most part, went to church. But I was 14 years old when I heard the gospel for the first time. Now, that is just like uh, my teenagers and also I'm learning more and more of my 38-year-old self. I don't always hear everything that people tell me. So maybe I'd heard the gospel at some point in my life. But the first time that I recall hearing it, the first time that it took hold, I was 14. Don't assume someone knows the gospel. Be the one that clarifies it for them. We glorify God as we allow him to order our life, and he orders our witness. He orders our time telling others about him. And then God orders our life together. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, we read that the next day, Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, what is this you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge? while all the people stand around you from morning until evening. Moses replied to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you're doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me. I'll give you some advice, and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from among the people able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophets. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring every major case, they bring you every major case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load 
and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you will be able to endure. And also, all these people will be able to go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Moses let his father-in-law go, and he journeyed to his own land. I'd love to spend more time on, on just this part of the passage we have here. It's, it's such an interesting passage where we see infant Israel. Remember, this is a people learning to be a nation. Okay, they're just learning to walk, learning to govern, learning to live life together. And, and really the closest parallel we have for Israel in the Old Testament is not America or any other nation for that matter. It's, it's the church. We're not talking nationality here. We're talking theology and ecclesiology, not geopolitics. God isn't instituting for Israel a national government. He's teaching his people how to live out the one another passages of the New Testament hundreds of years before the New Testament's ever written. And again, I'd love to spend another 30 minutes digging into all the ways this passage parallels the New Testament church and, and even the ways that these mechanisms are present within our church today. But for the, the sake of time, I just want to help us grab onto one big picture idea here. You see, church, even Moses can't do it alone. Moses had a massive job description. Moses is as Midwestern as they get, right? At one point in the, in the book of Exodus, we're told that there's 600,000 men in Israel, and apparently not once did it ever occur to Moses to perhaps ask one of these 600,000 men for help. If anyone could do it on their own, it's Moses, right? I mean, he, he served as teacher, counselor, judge, and in many ways he acted as a tribal king without ever holding anything close to that title. He, he spoke the words that God directly told him to speak. That was his role as, as prophet, but he did so much more. He was trying to help them apply the truths that God spoke to everyday life. And, and that's where his work as judge came in. And it became overwhelming. It was overwhelming to the point that there's a sense in which it would have been sinful to continue. That's what, uh, that's what Jethro says in verse 17. What you're doing is not good. You see, church, we have a problem when we take on burdens that God didn't intend us to bear or to try to bear alone burdens that God designed to be carried by a multitude and not by a single person. Church, if Moses needed help, so do you. That's why God's people have always been God's people in relationship with one another. Jesus established the church, and very early on in Acts, after Jesus ascended back to the Father, we see the church begin to function, begin to bear one another's burdens and care for one another on a level that no other institution can do. God never intends for us to do all the work ourselves. God places us into a local body of believers. And the idea that there's a, a follower of God sort of floating around out there somewhere with no connection to other believers. It just, I'm on my own. It's me and God, and I'm good, and I've got the Bible, and that's all I need. That idea is foreign to Scripture. Walking with God has never been a one-man or a one-woman show. You need people. And Moses was overwhelmed by the responsibility, and it showed. Verse 14 tells us that Moses was about as efficient as the DMV, right? This was wearing him out, and it was taking all day. 
Okay, people stood around from morning to evening waiting to get their audience with Moses. Church, when we try to do it alone, things don't go well. In fact, that's why our membership covenant starts off this way. It's the first promise we make to each other when we join this church. We will walk together in brotherly love, exercising Christian care and watchfulness over each other, participating in each other's joys and bearing one another's burdens and sorrows with tender sympathy. See, Jethro instructed Moses to enlist good, God-fearing, trustworthy, benevolent men to come alongside him in living for God. Church, Exodus 18 shows us how God works through his people in the ordinary days of our lives, the days when the crisis is behind us. And yes, maybe the mountain still lies ahead of us, but God is Lord over our circle. He's Lord over the people we hold closest. We, we tell the story of God verbally as we seek to see the lost in our lives come to know the Lord. And, and we lock arms with those people who have trusted Christ around us to live out God's glory in a local church. You see, we need one another. Granted, your day-to-day -day role doesn't see you judging the affairs of a nation like Moses did. That's not the seat that we sit in. But all of us bear a burden that we need others to bear alongside of us. In fact, most of the, the commands that are given to God's people corporately in the New Testament deal with one another. If there's, this, if there's no other in your life, it's impossible to one another. So if we take nothing from this verse, as we see how God orders and structures our lives, recognize that that structure should include Others, our family for one, the, the people who are in our circle, those that are closest to us, even if they're not blood relatives, those who are the closest people to you. But beyond that, others as well. Who has God recruited into your life to come alongside you in bearing those burdens? That's what the church is supposed to be for one another. So who has God given you to carry your hardship along with you, to look at that problem that you can't solve on your own and help give you godly counsel. If you don't have that person, find it in someone sitting around you. It doesn't matter if they're your age or 30 years older than you or 30 years younger than you. We are blessed, church, that God has, has made us as a, as a body multi-generational. In fact, we took a small handful of people to an evangelism conference this week and and we had people that were of retirement age, we'll just leave it there for safety's sake, of retirement age. And then we had Skylar with us who had to get carded going into the seminary. Like, You're not old enough for Bible stuff. No, I'm kidding. Um, but Skylar is young, and some of us were not. Okay? God has brought together a multi-generational body of wisdom here. Some of us are more able to do the physical things, so we come alongside those that aren't. Some of us are, are more wise in the way that the world works and what God has done in our lives, and we share that wisdom with others. Folks, it is a beautiful thing when God's church works together to raise up disciples. So whether it's an evangelism relationship, whether it's a burden-bearing relationship, whether it's you just looking at your life and saying, yeah, my life is ordered around something that is not of God, it is ordered around my job, it is ordered around money, it is ordered around our kids' sports activities, it's ordered around, and none of those things in and of themselves are bad, but they can take over in a way. That means our life is devoted to those things and not to the things of God. 
We can be devoted to the things of God and be engaged in all those things and should be. You should be engaged in work. You should be engaged in your community. You should be engaged in development with your family, with your kids in particular. So we should be out in the community doing all those things. But the point of all those things is the gospel. The gospel is not an add-on to any of those other things in our life. As we sit at that middle ground, whether... And maybe you're going through a crisis right now, and if that's you, there's, there's been much to speak into your life in these last few chapters. But, but for many of us who, who find ourselves between crises at this moment, so to speak, recognize that it's here that we prepare ourselves to climb whatever mountain it is that God has put in front of us. So how are you allowing God to order your life to be prepared for the next mountain that he's put in your way. Would you bow your heads with me as we prepare to pray? God, we come with a, a, a deep sense of gratitude for your word today because without it, God, we would be lost. We would neither know your story or how to tell your story unless you revealed it to us. But God, you have. You have given us your statutes. You have given us your laws. You have shown us the way to live. God, we pray you'd help us embrace it. God, help us as, as your people to order our closest relationships, those we hold dearest, whether they be have the same last name as us or not, whether they are our family, whether they are friends, whatever it is, God, those who are closest to us, God, help us to, to order those relationships in such a way that we are about the gospel, that we love one another like Jesus does, that we see the world around us like Jesus does, God, that we identify people in our lives who don't know Christ and that that because we have devoted ourselves to you, God, we're going to devote ourselves to those people as well, to pursuing them with your gospel. God, I'm reminded to be grateful today of those who pursued me with the gospel, Father, and, and all of us in this room who belong to you, God. We, we by and large recognize that you used people in that process to draw us to yourself. God, use us. Maybe it's someone we meet for the first time. Maybe like Moses and Jethro, it's a relationship that goes back decades. Maybe it takes decades of investment. And we recognize it could have, the, the change we see in Jethro in Exodus 18 could have been the result of dozens, hundreds even, of late night conversation while shepherding sheep on the plains of Midian. Before your Holy Spirit worked and, and the allegiance of this priest was shifted to your kingdom. His heart was, was brought to life spiritually for the first time, God. And he became a worshiper of the one true God. There are people in all of our lives that are destined for hell today because they have earned hell. Lord, we sang about your marvelous grace earlier, and we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would shower that marvelous grace on them such that they would repent of their sins,
place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And God, we pray that you would use us in that process. Help us to be a people with the gospel on our lips. And the Lord, give us the boldness and courage to ask for help, to ask others into our lives, to pray for us, to support us, to love one another the way that your word calls us to love each other, to bear each other's burdens to humbly encourage one another, to correct one another when we're in sin. God, help us to be open enough to have those relationships. Not, don't let us be like Moses, trying to do it all on our own and feeling crushed. Lord, help us to see that your way is better. Just like it was better for all involved when Moses enlisted help, God, show us that it is better for everyone involved when we bring others along with us. Give us the grace and courage to do so, we pray in your Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, folks, we're going to transition to a time where we stand.